Welcome to Iteration, a weekly podcast about programming, development, and design. Hey, I'm John. I'm a software developer, and I build web apps and do a little bit of mobile app work, React Native stuff. I am joined, as always, by JP. Hey, JP. How's it going, John? So my name is JP. I am a software engineer at a tech real estate startup called Open Door. And today is the first time we're recording and I'm using my double monitor setup that I just got, which is really cool. I'm back on the double monitor setup, which is funny because <laughs> I've talked at length at how I am just a single laptop, no dual monitor, no dual monitor, you know, fancy schmancy YouTube, YouTube yeah. Person. So you're saying you're a hypocrite. <laughs> so I'm a, I, I waffle a lot on these things. And now I'm doing this weird thing where like I'm looking at the camera, but I'm also looking at my notes. <laughs> but it's actually really helpful to have a, a second a second monitor when you have like yeah, a terminal yeah. and an editor and emails. It just sucks when you have to unplug and all your stuff gets all jumbled up. <sighs> I'm with you there. I'm with you there. It breaks workflow. And then you're like try to work on a plane. And you're like, I just like can't work without my second monitor. Yeah. It's funny though, because I do a lot of video calls with people and when they have second monitors, I'm used to the feeling of they're like looking at my eyebrows. Like it feels like because they always like are looking next to me, not at me. And it's it's fine. It's fine. It's it's okay. Yeah. But anyways, that's because it's been a while since we've talked. It's been about three weeks. What's new with you and what's happened in sort of that time period? Um, anything, anything interesting? Yeah, getting into the new year, I've got some big career changes that I'm excited to announce soon uh, for the agency, which is going to be a cool transition. We might even do like a whole episode on some of those transitions in that journey, which could be interesting, but I'm not ready to share that publicly on the record yet. But it was great. I had a couple of weeks off for the new year. I think our recent episode releases were like comically saying Merry Christmas yeah. in February. <laughs> so I apologize for the editing there. But overall, tearing into it, I think we're at like 12% through the year as we're recording this in real time. What about you? Yeah, not not much with me. I feel like the last couple of weeks for me has just been taking care of errands or things that I've been meaning to for and it feels good to finally get things out of the way. Like I went to the doctor, got my like yearly checkup. Went to the DMV and spent like two hours there getting my real ID for California, nice, which nice. was a fi just a pain in the ass. By the way, I don't know if Such you know. A cluster I don't know if you know this. It takes three months, at least in the California, to get a, an appointment, which is yep. apparently way much better than <laughs> standing in line. I guess it depends on the DMV that you go to, but you know, ever since this like 2020 rule of like you need to have a real ID to identify yeah. yourself, even flying domestic. It's now a thing. So if your license is expiring in the next three months, you probably should schedule that DMV appointment now. So you're not like, oh, shit, my DMV appointments after my license expires. So with that PSA, thanks for that PSA, JP, we're going to jump into the episode topic for this week, which is essential integrations and services and APIs. So not sure what to title this episode yet, but there's all these services and things that you have to plug into as a software developer that kind of kickstart a certain feature set. So just quick examples is like sending transactional email, managing credit cards and payment providers, SMSs, scheduler, like that kind of stuff is really important. And I remember first getting into code years ago, I thought I'd have to build all this stuff from scratch. Like the idea of collecting your credit card was so intimidating because I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to like store and manage and talk with Visa and banks. And it's like, no, 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 no. This is all kind of handled for you with a lot of off the shelf integrations. So what I wanted to do today is kind of give a quick primer on the top ones that JP and I have used in projects 
kind of give our experiences, how they plug in, how they work, and some tips and tricks surrounding those kind of APIs and services. Because it's this whole layer of software. Like you've got backend, you've got front end, but this idea of APIs is a huge part of what we do day to day. And there isn't a lot of resources that bring it all in one place. Like here's all the shit you need to get moving on you know, most apps. Yeah. And it's interesting because, okay, so the first thing that we're probably going to talk about is email. I think that goes without saying yeah. <laughs> because email is such a huge part of literally every web application out there. Um, and it comes in many different forms, right? Like it might be a marketing email. It might be a transactional email. It might be a confirmation email. It's funny. I think about these things now when I use like the internet. So like when I scheduled my appointment at the DMV, I obviously got like a confirmation email which I don't think came until like, it didn't come in immediately. So I'm like, oh, did they put that in like a, in like a, a low queue, a medium queue? Anyways, doesn't matter. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's interesting. Now I think about all these things like, it's like, does everyone use SendGrid? Like what are MailChimp? Like what, what are people using out there? And I think it's funny because you'll definitely, I remember, I remember I got an email from Goat, which is like that sneaker startup. And I think, I think it was Goat. And they definitely sent like, a template email out to everybody because I got an email that was like, hello, John Doe one, two, three. And it was literally <laughs> yeah. like a template. And I was like, oh, someone accidentally sent this in prod yep. to like everybody on accident. So it's interesting when you like know that people are definitely using something like a MailChimp and it's like, oh, I've seen that email template before. For sure. But yes. Emails are the first thing that we're going to talk about. Yeah, that sounds good. So that said, I don't want to over-optimize this conversation for specific providers, sure. but we're probably going to talk about a few that we've worked with that are very Rails-friendly or React-friendly, but several of these can be used with almost any library. And just exchange it for whatever your favorite transactional email service is. They're, they're really different. So let's just talk like very basics. Most software frameworks don't actually send emails themselves. Like it doesn't physically like pass the bits from this email to that email. It's most of the time you're going to be talking with some type of transactional email service. When I say transactional email, that's different than like a MailChimp or one of these other more like marketing emails where you have this kind of template systems. So basically you're going to pass via an API endpoint a, 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 a chunk of data to a transactional email provider, and then they're going to trigger that email and actually handle that email. So they're going to handle all that logic of actually passing the bits to the different email providers. And there's like, obviously a ton of benefits there. You're not like managing pop settings and S SMTP settings. Like you're just trusting their expertise in the actual deliverability of those emails. And which is nice is they're managing that at scale. So you don't have to worry about this idea of getting blacklisted or whitelisted. They're doing that at scale in a way that is really, really beneficial. So that said, I, I did want to kind of like talk through some kind of tips and tricks and ideas I found there. One of these is I have found a lot of benefit from having some type of log object in your own database. It can be really helpful to know if you've like email sent, email viewed, and there's different webhooks that can be set up with these transactional email providers. Because I've found that if you only depend on the logs of the transactional email provider, it can make your application really slow when you're trying to report against all those users. So if you want to know if email ABC on Tuesday got delivered to all your users, you could go ping the transactional email service API and like pass them some kind of message ID and be like, who all got this? 
it just ends up to be really messy and there's a lot of slop there I have found. So having like a very straightforward log object to be like, yes, user XYZ got message XYZ on X date or viewed it or opened or was sent or was queued. It's really, really helpful to have. That's like my kind of first thought when thinking about transactional email. It's just one tip I've picked up. Interesting. So you will actually have like an audit log stored in your database so that you can run queries on like, I don't know how many emails were sent, this and that, instead of yep. like relying on, oh, interesting. Um, do, yeah, do on the external provider. I still do that with almost every project I've built. I still use them and lean on those really heavily. And I think a piece of it is that I changed email providers in a platform that I, I went from MailChimp has a transactional email called Gibbon, I think it's called. Um, and they uh, officially depreciated it. So it's like, it's really hard to keep using now. And so I had to move it. And so when I did that, I lost all of the API access because now the new service now looks at the delivery logs in a totally different way. And I think this is kind of a tip overarching and talking about all these integrations and services. It's really useful to architect them in a way that you can just plug in a different email service or plug in a different payment provider or plug in a different whatever the thing is that you're triggering. Like, I would really encourage you not to over-optimize over a specific provider. And this log object on my own database is a way that I'm not over-optimizing for any one provider because I still can know whether or not an email was sent regardless of what kind of backend provider I used. So thinking about the tooling and like key logic, especially on a system where it's really important to know what was or was not sent, that's not true of every system. Yeah, certainly. Okay, it's interesting because right now we're talking about emails in the context, it sounds like, of like transactional emails, but there's this whole yeah, other sure. world of like marketing emails, right? And a slight digression here, I think it can be a tricky challenge if you have multiple email systems because like, let's say I unsubscribe from like, as a user, mm. I unsubscribe from your email. My biggest pet peeve is when I go to... <laughs> When I click that unsubscribe button and then I get bombarded with like eight different fucking checkboxes and I have to click every single one. It's like, I don't mm -hmm. want the marketing emails. I don't want transactional emails. <laughs> I don't want special promo emails that release every Tuesday. And it's like, I don't know why I have to, like, I just want to unsubscribe from all of them. But from a develop, like a developer standpoint, I totally get that because like you might have like your send grid as like your transactional emails and but you might have like some other random i don't know mailchimp or something set up specifically just for your marketing emails yeah which all becomes like a, a, a hairy mess but like i think the ease it's like it's like just so easy to plug and play different email mm -hmm. providers that you end up in this like weird situation where you have multiple things set up so ha have you found any like best practices on like how to manage these different different things for the same yeah. for the same purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one thinking about the unsubscribe is another example where I've architected systems in a way that it's easy to switch out for providers. So I always have an unsubscribe column on my users or users detail table in my own database. And so then I can say they've unsubscribed. I know that before I queue up an email through MailChimp or SendGrid or any of the other services, I know whether they've hard opted in or opted out of emails with a single checkbox. Because I had that exact problem in one of my applications. We we had marketing emails all set with the marketing team and like we used the MailChimp API to just like throw them on a marketing list. But at the same time, we also had transactional or quasi transactional like scheduled follow-up emails that came from our database. And so we had that exact problem where users were unsubscribing, but it was only unsubscribing from one type of email. So I would recommend, again, like thinking about how to handle an integration using your own 
kind of your own database and you're just using them just to talk to the email service. Like lean on these, like be smart about, I won't say never, but be smart about where you lean on these third-party services too far and you're over-optimizing them. When we talk about Stripe in a second, I think I'll just talk about this now. Like Stripe, I've built systems where I way over-optimized based on Stripe's subscriptions or promo code model. And then Stripe makes a change and it's really frustrating because you have to re-architect your whole interface and system around their domain changes. And so that's okay, but know that if you're over-optimizing for a specific provider, you're definitely taking on some tech debt. So it's something to consider. I do have like one, I have like two more things on email because I think this is a big one. I think one that a lot of developers overlook is DNS settings for email. It's really easy in a new project because you end up with this like really weird purgatory of like the marketing email. It'd be like, hello at newstartup.com. But then it says like sent via SendGrid at oh, yeah. SMTP5. And I see this all the time and the delivery rates on those are way lower and so are the open rates. Interesting. And like take, yeah, take two seconds, go into your DNS settings, figure out with your transactional email provider what they need to be and like add that shit into your DNS settings, add those lines in the DNS settings to actually authenticate your URL and make sure it's HTTPS because Gmail will a lot, will, will respect your email a lot more and they have way less chance of sending it to spam if you actually update your DNS settings. And that's something I've forgotten to do on like three different startups I've worked with, but it's something I see all the time. Like I'll try something on, um, you know, some forum, I find a product and I try it and like, they just didn't update their DNS settings. It's like, this wouldn't have gone to spam if you just would have taken two extra seconds and fixed your DNS settings to actually send it, like authenticate your URL to send the emails appropriately. And the, the other thing to consider is like your reply to in that same kind of vein of making sure your wiring's there, like make sure your reply to exists or it's clear that it doesn't exist for your users. Cause otherwise people always reply to these emails. So either make it clear you can't reply or actually put a reply that makes sense. What about you, JP? How do you, how do you approach this in your day job? Do you have any like last tips and tricks around email? So hold on, let me step back. That's interesting. So is, okay, the, is, the, is the end goal to not have that like line that says sent via SendGrid? Or is it? Yes. Okay, so that's a reflection of not properly having your DNS settings correctly. Yes. It just mm -hmm. won't have anything or will it say like sent from newstartup.com? Or it says sent from newstartup.com with a verified identity of that identity. Interesting. So there's no like weird subtext or substring if your DNS settings are set properly. It just looks like someone like opened their email from that domain and sent you an email from that domain. No like weird via, because there's like four layers of email identity. There's the loosest, which is like the sent via, which is like when you have an Asana update, it'll be like, JP sent you a message, but it's actually Asana emailing you. And then there's the second one where it actually shows your email but then it like lets me know that it's another. So there's it's a very weird sliding scale of authority. And that's kind of how most of these email providers define that. It's like, what is the authority and reference to this email? And sometimes it's like a weird proxy and it's a forward. And I don't know all the details of it, but all you need to do to get to the highest authority of an email is your DNS settings. It's that simple. And it takes you like 20 minutes. So just go do it. But keep in mind, if you change your email provider, you'll need to modify your DNS settings every time you change your transactional email provider. But that's one that one's bit me in the ass a ton of times. Like, why is every single new email from this startup going to spam? Ah, damn it. DNS settings. Got it. Okay. Interesting. I think it's technically SMTP settings in your DNS, but it's, it's not that hard. Just Google it, like how to authenticate my identity. And like every email provider provides you with the options to quote, verify a URL. Like that's normally what they call it or like validate your URL. Certainly. Yeah, I think I, something I want to touch on, which you mentioned is like, it's very much 
more stable to rely on these certain services for just doing the one thing. For example, it's like just mm-hmm. sending the email. But I think it's interesting because there are like trade-offs. Like what you give up when you do that is like f- flexibility, I guess. So, sure. okay, let me let me give an example. It's like Opendoor uses this service called Iterable. And this is something we're trying to lean on heavily for tran- any, anything transactional. So... If you want to send a text message, if you want to send a push notification, if you want to send an email address, we try to use iterable. So what this does is what it, it, it basically empowers anyone who's not an engineer, so mostly people in marketing, to basically make these if this then that draggable UI workflows that make it so that like they can have a they can have a segment of users enter a workflow like oh all users that unlocked a house in the last three hours and mm-hmm. then. We basically parse through that. They, they drag a bunch of boxes around. It's like, okay, is this user, is their account newer than one week old? Are they in California? This, whatever, right? Wow, and this looks really powerful. And at the end of that, we send them a text message or we can send them an email or we could send them a push notification, right? So like, let's right. talk. Let, and we'll this talk. works across all of those. So with one integration, yep. you get all those wins. Which is, and I think under the hood, you have to like put in like, I don't know, uh, an API key for like SendGrid, for example, sure. or something like that, right? Yeah. So at the end of the day, it does hook into SendGrid. So I think it's interesting that there's another layer. And, and so this tool is built specifically <laughs> for marketing people, but... I think it's interesting, like, you're giving up flexibility, right? Because, like, you can't just change out iterable with, like, another thing. Like, you're, right. you're like, highly coupled to this system. Highly coupled. Your domain logic is actually coupled to their system. So if they want to screw you over and raise their pricing or they shut down or they want to change their APIs, you could potentially be in a really tough spot with the product. But at the same time, with a single integration, you just enabled your entire marketing team to have all this flexibility around messaging and like having transactional messages. And now that doesn't have to touch engineering. So like, is this the wrong call? I don't know. The answer is it depends on how you see this as an investment versus mm-hmm. kind of a cost. I just think it's important to weigh it out. And I think this is a perfect example of really tightly coupling to an integration and knowing and just being aware that, well, we're coupled to that. So if tomorrow, for some reason, the relationship with iterable wasn't great, you know, you have to go through that transaction transition, which can be really, really painful. And I've gone through those transitions. So I think that if it's something that's in your core domain, you have to be careful with it. Like a perfect example would be Stripe subscriptions. Know that leaning on those Stripe subscriptions makes it so if you try to migrate, like it's going to be really hard to migrate those subscriptions. It's likely your users will have to re-sign up in your new integration when it's done. But specifically iterable, like, yes, it's key. It's transactional conversation, the push notifications, emails, SMS. But at the same time, you wouldn't necessarily die overnight and you have a path to start building those out in your own kind of logic flow. Um, Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think it's very much a give and take between how much you optimize over a specific service. I think it's a perfect example of that. Yeah, it's tough because we iterable is like relatively new. So we're like trying to migrate over from like Rails mailers to iterable. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we're finding like, actually, sometimes Rails mailers makes a little bit more sure. sense because like a password reset should never be out of iterable, I would imagine. Yeah, of course. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, but like, I do feel like there are definitely emails where there is a lot of like, if this, then that logic that makes more sense for it to not live in the code base. Like if that were mm-hmm. to like disappear, it'd be like, okay, you could just like make that again. And it's it's like really not a big deal. Yeah. 
That's a weird world, like those quasi-marketing emails. Yeah. Like for everybody who searched for a tutor in the last seven days but hasn't booked one, like send this message. And like marketing loves those because they work. Yep. Marketing loves those messages and they can be a total pain in the ass and a whole ticket workflow. So honestly, iterable as itself is an interesting integration. Let's move on to payment providers. This is what I'm excited to talk through. So as I mentioned in the beginning, I was all intimidated by the idea of like collection of account numbers or credit card numbers and dealing with that. But like the bottom line is, when you're going into payment, if you're new to this, you never actually hold any of that data. The idea is this concept of tokenization, which you'll see more if you're in software, you'll see this in other areas as well. But the idea is that they enter their password information on the front end, that front end passes that directly to an API over secure connection, and then that API passes you back a token that represents that data. So basically like you hand all that data to Stripe, and Stripe reads it, writes it, and processes it for you. So you're only working through the proxy of Stripe to the people's payment providers. And Stripe's dealing with American Express and, and Bank of America and all these different low-level financial integrations that you don't have to deal with. You just have to deal with this one concept of like having a Stripe user ID and a Stripe token. And once you create those things, you can create charges against those, refunds against those, transfers if you go into the like the marketplace stuff. And like, that's the concept there. And like with Stripe specifically is interesting because there's a sliding scale of how custom you can get. Like they have this very much like Stripe checkout where you drop in like one line of JavaScript and then it just like renders out a whole checkout experience and just like passes back the idea that yes, user is paid equals true. And like you can get, it's a sliding scale of how much data versus you can do like a fully custom build where you never see the Stripe logo. It's all your own form elements, all your own HTML, CSS. But at the same time, you're using Stripe to process on the back end. And I've done other payment providers, and most of them have the same concept of sliding scale of like how much integration you go with and how specific you do. And it's just something to think about. And I think specifically Stripe, the one tip I will give for, for Stripe is just fully embrace test mode. It's super powerful. And it's something that I struggled with in the beginning because I was like, well, I want to know if it's processing. And so I would constantly like charge my debit card for like these bullshit charges and refund them again and again and again. And you lose the processing fee every time. So like no matter what, you lose that 3%, which is funny. Like that gets paid out from the startup no matter what. And like, it's just like, when in hindsight, it's obviously not the right solution. And just to like leave the two cents of Stripe's test mode is actually really powerful and very reliable. If something is working in test mode, when you flip that toggle and change out those API keys, it's going to work in production. I've been ranting too long. What are your thoughts around payment and Stripe and other providers like that, JP? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't I don't actually use Stripe that much because in my world, payments uh, like we hand off that payment process, right? Like, so if you're going to buy a house, you're not going to like do an Amazon checkout type thing oh, and, right. and, and purchase a home that way. So to be honest with you, my only experience with like payment providers is like our, my my time at WizTutor where we had oh. a very, it wasn't hacked together. We, ha we had a, a Stripe integration. It was hacked together. <laughs> okay, it's hacked together. But my question for you is, okay, so I know that you can just drop in that one line of JavaScript. It renders out the yeah. whole form, the whole shebang. Is that what you reach for typically when you first like will do, uh, I don't know, like a, a new project mm -hmm. is just that simple line? Or do you think it's more beneficial to just go straight into the your custom form where you just hit like an API call and you do all that processing yourself? Yeah. Great question. I don't like Stripe checkout because you end up in this world of redirect hell. And wh what I don't love is when you can't see your error logs on what happened. 
And the second you pass off to another payment provider, PayPal is very famous for this, check out with PayPal. It opens up a new tab or reroutes that tab to PayPal. You depend on PayPal handling that user properly and then redirecting you back. And if that user has any kind of a problem with the interface, you never know. They just leave your site and never come back. And that's true of Stripe Checkout, Braintree, Redirect, PayPal, Checkout, a lot of these like actually redirect the page. I feel like the right compromise is somewhere in the middle. So Stripe specifically, I use something called Stripe Elements is what I tend to reach for, which they will render out the actual credit card collection piece of the form, but the rest of the form is actually on my server. And so you kind of tell Stripe what you want them to collect or not collect. And it's all in the context and styling of your own form. But under the hood, it's sending that part of the form over to Stripe. So like the way that happens under the hood is you actually just identify with a little thing of JavaScript, like I want this specific piece of my form when data is entered here to be validated and handled by Stripe. And then Stripe will just append the value to that form of the token ID. And then when it's submitted, you just save that token ID. So, you know, in a whole credit card collection form, you'll have name, email, your address. And then the only thing that gets saved to my database, once that's finished filling out, if it's valid data, is the token ID for that credit card or the customer ID for the Stripe customer credit card. So then I have in my own database, the like customer's information, and then I'm able to handle it from there. And so I feel like that's the right balance of doing a full custom build out because Stripe also allows you to actually like take the credit card number onto my account, then have Stripe process it. And I don't want to go all the way there because I just never want the credit card information. And so I feel like this elements is the right compromise of those two worlds, like rendering out a full checkout experience from the vendor versus my own. And I've switched payment providers. I moved one over to Square and it was like relatively simple to switch out that same architecture to the Square processing from Stripe, where I think if we would have used the checkout, it would have over optimized for the Stripe workflow. I'm like using brand names here interchangeably with actual elements. Um, ask me any questions if you have follow-up questions on that. Okay, interesting. What, hold on, why Square though? They were processing CBD payments. And so it was like a CBD pr product and Stripe restricts a lot of lines of businesses. It's very weird. So Square is a little bit more open-handed with the lines of businesses that they legally support. Interesting. Yeah. So your domain actually does matter. Is that something that like people need to um, do research on first? Like, yeah, would, would you get, sure. if you started using Stripe and you were selling CBD products on like a Shopify, for example, would you just no like, would, would they shut, would they shut you down? They, without, just, like, they just stop processing your payments. Yeah. Oh, it's, wow. it's brutal. And that's one thing you have to realize with any of these payment providers and platform providers, several of them have kind of just kind of their own ethics or agendas that they're driving that they want you to support and something to be aware of. So if you have a business that's a little bit more gray, you know, a, I don't think CBD is a gray business, but for some reason, a lot of these businesses see it that way. Mm -hmm. That's something to keep in mind. But there's like tons of other examples, including like, I don't build them myself, but, you know, adult websites or gambling websites or like all this like world of kind of gray markets. I think some even restrict like supplement sales because that's a little bit of a gray market. So there's a... It's, but that's something to keep in mind across all of your providers. If there's any questions about like what your business does, it even goes to the world of like marketplace apps. Several of these providers have a lot of very specific restrictions around how your marketplace app is structured. So even in the world of WizTutor, like we had to be very careful of what our payment providers were and be very transparent about how we're compensating our tutors and what that looks like in terms of like passing money through a platform. Because a piece of that is they don't want you using the platform to launder money. So it'd be like really easy to just have money laundering. So, but yeah, that's something to consider in general. 
Yeah, interesting. And I feel like that's would be especially true for like something like a text messaging service. Because mm-hmm. like, dude, if you're doing some shady business over text messaging, I can't imagine Twilio would be like, okay with that. That's a perfect example. Twilio as well. They have a terms of service and okay. they at the same time will shut people down in the same way. So that said, like, let's get into SMS. Let's talk through that a bit. Perfect segue. Yeah. Hold on. Do you think Twilio has like a thing <laughs> where they're like parse messages to make sure that you're not like sending over shady shit over communication? Like, I don't, sending I don't to think so. I, I mean, they probably do under the hood. I'm sure they have a God mode that allows them to see all message content. They'd be stupid not to. Um, but I would imagine that they probably rely on like if they see a lot of STOPs coming in stop or unsubscribes, then your account's probably flagged and then maybe reviewed, I would imagine. And that's like a perfect segue into SMS. So this is another one that almost every modern web platform needs to support, which is some type of SMS. So whether it's account verification would be the most common use case, but also like whether it's marketing SMS follow-ups, transactional, you know, actual routed conversations in like a marketplace platform. I've done a lot of this different stuff and I've built it all on Twilio. This is not an ad for Twilio. I actually really don't like Twilio, but they are the number one in the marketplace as far as like, cheaply sending SMS. So to kind of jump off these same examples, like you don't have to work with T-Mobile or Verizon to do a cell phone infrastructure, provision a number. You don't have to do any of that. Like Twilio's done all the hard work here. You can go to Twilio in a couple clicks, like get a phone number for a couple bucks and like credits to be able to send and receive SMS. So it works similar to the other things we talked about in that you get an API endpoint, you set up your account, you set payment up on it, and then you're able to kind of send and receive SMS messages. A specific thing that I've had a lot of edge cases on is this idea of there's a federal law that for SMS marketing, if you reply STOP or unsubscribe, so if you reply to any SMS message with stop or unsubscribe, that number can no longer send you messages until you reply again with like start or there's a couple other keywords that work. So this is actually federal law. And so Twilio enforces this at an account level. So if you have a user who replies to your automated SMS stop, your platform will still try to send those messages from Twilio and then it will error out. And it's so weird that Twilio like has it actually like hard error. It doesn't like, it doesn't just kind of like handle it for you. And so if you have like a queue of messages and you don't write this in a smart way, when you hit a user who's said stop, like you can have that whole process of sending that batch of messages break if you're not careful because it comes back as like a 500 error. I don't remember the exact error code. So if you don't handle that error and then also you can have a whole batch of users you think are getting your messages. And if you're not handling that error, then they're actually not getting them even though you're enqueuing them to send. Same thing is true of email transaction. People can unsubscribe in platform. Some of the transactional email providers actually handle the unsubscribe links. And so you will think from your admin interface that users are getting emails, but they've actually unsubscribed. So it's a very similar use case that you need to understand the nuances of your platform. Um, and this one specifically is such a pain in the ass because we've I had a startup where we had a batch of users we thought were getting messages, but weren't because some users within the batch have, have done this stop edge case. So you need to make sure like in any integration, you should think through and handle your edge cases and errors. But this is one specifically that's bit me in the ass. I wanted to kind of leave a breadcrumb for other people. So if... You have five users that are in a queue and the first one had text message stop and you didn't handle that exception and you didn't catch that exception. Potentially, none of those people are getting their their text messages sent to them. Yeah. If you wrote shitty code, which is what we had at the time, like we didn't think through like, you know, next and less error and just handling the rescue. There's like a thousand ways to architect that in a way that makes sense. 
I think too, like we were handling a lot of transactional delivery very in line, like not handling real cues or background concepts or concepts of logs. And that's actually another reason I love this idea of a log because if for some reason delivery fails, even if like your server just gets interrupted or you have you know a, an hour of downtime, if you're handling all that inline with no log object, there's no way to know whether or not you sent it without like a lot of manual work, like pinging an API, seeing if it was delivered. But if you have a log object, it's a lot easier to be like, oh, was this sent? Yes or no? Like in your own database, like it's very comfortable to be able to go like, okay, well, if not sent, then resend as long as it's within the couple hour window. And so this idea of like handling resend and failure within transactional stuff Payments as well is really important. And like none of this should be happening inline. Ideally, this is all background jobs, which we should do a whole episode on background jobs. I could talk for hours on background jobs. Yeah, I think I think it's um because it's it's so magical and easy to use, it's very easy to put something inline. Like I think the first time mm -hmm. I used Twilio was for WizTutor, <laughs> and I was just this was like the first third-party integration I've ever done, I guess yeah. aside from email. But it really felt like third party because you had to like register for a thing, like yeah. click, a, click a button for a phone number and like everything just worked. You like plug in your API keys, um, download like the gem or the node module yep. or whatever it is. And then you like plug it in and then you like call message on the on this Twilio object and it fucking sends a text message like it's so cool very easily it's like the easy it's like you know with great power yeah. comes great responsibility that was, or whatever. that was the moment I became a software developer. When, <laughs> when I was in the command line, I'm not even joking. When I was in the command line and I sent a message that went to my phone and it's literally like Twilio test and then the content. And yeah. I sent like to my, I sent myself a message like butts or something. You know, who knows <laughs> what I sent. And like, I was just like, this is so fucking cool. Like I realized the potential in that right then. And then like, I built like this little interface where I could like communicate with my phone from my computer. And I was just like, this is so fucking cool. Like that was the moment for me. You're so right. But you were saying you put it in line because it's just this magic moment. It's so easy to do. Yeah, it's like so easy to do and you just yeah. throw it in there. But like, yeah, like you said, like it, you probably should be throwing that in like your sidekick <laughs> or like a queue or a background thing, because like, yeah. who knows at scale what's going to happen when you try to send like a text message that's not really that important. And it's just like mm -hmm. you can't process it. Yeah. And it's hard because like that one message, it doesn't feel that important, but that one message can make a world of difference. Like specifically in WizTutor, like the reminders on upcoming uh, tutoring sessions, like that means your tutor doesn't show up and like you're sitting at Starbucks and you have your math final tomorrow and you don't have help. Like these are actually pretty important for people sometimes. And it can feel like, well, if, you know, if the scheduled SMSs doesn't go out, it's not the end of the world. And maybe in your platform it isn't, but a simple log object or some kind of like thinking about the idea of a resend goes a long way. And like, it's easy to be overly optimistic and be like, well, we're not going to have downtime. It's just, it's fine to do it in line, which on your scale, it might be fine. But at a certain point, like you'll bump against the reality of those things and it gets pretty painful. That said, I hope this overview of like integrations was helpful. I feel like we could even do another episode and go in like further API and providers and things like that. But I think it's cool too to talk about not tools or like services, but this is more like direct third-party APIs. Do you have any closing thoughts on APIs before we jump into our picks? Yeah, test them. Figure out a way to test Ooh, these APIs. This is such a good topic. Yeah, um, I could not agree more. Like the idea of testing APIs, that has bit me in the ass tons of times. Like thinking like, oh, the API works and we're doing it right. But yeah, you've got test mode in Stripe is one. Twilio has a test mode. There's a lot that are like specifically hard. The concept of mocks to me is that's the right way to test that I found that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, what about you? How have you found good ways to test this stuff? The one thing I will always try to test, which is funny because 
we were just talking about handling exceptions or catching errors or whatever yeah. is I try to make sure that I understand what the response back is for a failure. Because for mm -hmm. example, in this, um, we use iterable. There's a distinction between if you post a 400 or a 500, it's like very different, right? So like a 400 mm -hmm. means like it will stop execution of a workflow. So as a quick reminder, like you, you drag and drop, you make an if this, then that, thing sometimes in so, iterable yeah. in iterable sometimes you can put like webhooks in there which will like call your api so the apis are talking back and forth to each other right mm -hmm. and so if it hits a webhook that hits your back end and that's a 400 it will just stop completely but if it hits a 500 it will keep retrying that so <sighs> if, so if like you're not careful with like <laughs> you know things you're sending back you have to like make sure that one you send the right response that's so hard to test yes and and also like you need to mock that like uh what what happens like when it sends back a 500 to you mm -hmm. or like a 400 to you i think it's just like important to know like the kinds of responses you're getting back from their api so that you can like make sure that you're handling things correctly yeah that situation is super unique because you have to you have to test the entire workflow of webhooks calls and responses mm -hmm. and it's like that's a third party tool and that's like the hardest world to test well definitely the hardest world to test well. That's super interesting. Awesome stuff. Let's jump into picks. Okay. I don't have a pick yet, so I'm going to defer Ooh, to you. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to defer to you first. <laughs> I have an awesome pick this week that I'm like very jazzed about. I've kind of picked up a new hobby, which is the last thing I needed, but of coffee roasting at home. And I knew that people did this, but I was like, it's got to be shit because coffee roasters are $200,000. So how can you good roast good coffee at home? But like literally... All I did is I went to this website, Sweet Maria's, my friend did, and he showed me and introduced me to this world, and I'm so into it. And you can buy green unroasted coffee for like a quarter of the cost, less than a quarter. It's like 10% of the cost of like really high-end coffee. And this is like from amazing farms that are really well-sourced. And then like I actually roasted like literally on my stovetop with one of those popcorn makers, the Whirly Pops, where you just like turn the handle. And shockingly like with a little bit of youtube i have got such good coffee at home and i'm very surprised and i i have a very high discerning palate as far as like coffee roasting what that looks like and it's like there's something about you make it yourself it tastes twice as good so there's definitely that element going on but it's way cheaper to have way better quality coffee and it's really fun because it's something that you made and like learning more about coffee i've just been really loving this world and now you know i've been trolling ebay for like these like big real roasters but i don't think that's going to happen anytime soon but yeah if you're into coffee at all just like youtube like home coffee roasting maybe play with it because it's really cheap it's like 40 bucks to get into and it's been really really fun and like you get a bunch of great coffee so what's not to love this is so on brand for you <laughs> 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 I love it. Okay, I don't have a pick, so I will just... I'll have two. We still have I'll you. have two next You'll time. You'll have to do two next time. That sounds good. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you guys next episode. Peace.